All right, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, we're going to go to God's Word. We're in the second week of a sermon series, taking a look at different encounters that Jesus has with people after his resurrection. And these encounters, they changed everything. And a through line that we're going to experience as we take a look last week, for example, that Jesus encounters Mary. Uh, and then as we get into all the different encounters that Jesus has, we're going to get to Thomas today. He encounters Peter. He encounters disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, disciples in the upper room. All these different encounters are unique and different. And it reminds us that Jesus is personal. That he shows up to people in personal and unique ways. That God doesn't act through Jesus in a formulaic sort of way. But also a reminder that this faith is not in a set of principles, it's in a person. Each of these encounters transforms people because they have an encounter with the risen Lord. They encounter Jesus, not a set of principles, not just a, a body of teaching, but the body of Christ. Also a reminder that this faith is something that is faith into something. We talked about this at the outset of the sermon series, that uh, it's not just faith in something, where you are removed and you're having faith in Jesus far away, but you literally, you put your faith, your life, your hope, your, your past, your present, your future, your hopes, your dreams, and today your doubts into the person of Jesus. And we can't do any of this unless God comes to us from the outside and transforms us from within. This through line of these three threads we see throughout each of these resurrection experiences. Today, we're going to get to, to Thomas. Now, let me say something about Thomas. You know, many people uh, refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. And unfortunately, we have this picture of him that I believe is incomplete. We take a look at one thing that he said, and we uh, blow that bigger than perhaps we should. And his identity throughout history has become a moment in time. But we will discover, I believe, that Thomas is more than just a doubter. And perhaps even more importantly, we're going to understand where doubt plays a proper role in our faith journey. Because a reminder, as we started this sermon series in the Gospel according to John, where John has so much material to draw from. He's lived with Jesus for three years and over the course of those three years, there was teaching, there was miracles. And he even says at the end of his gospel account that he, he experienced so many things that weren't included in this book. And yet he chose the things in his letter, in this book of the Bible, so that we might believe, that we might put our faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah and through him have life. And scholars have pointed out that John actually draws material the place in his letter, in his gospel account, he draws from only the experiences of 21 different days out of a three-year window. And you could say that at the end of this gospel account, it reaches a crescendo. It builds to this great majestic climax. And God uses, through the power of the Holy Spirit, John to communicate not just Jesus' encounter with Mary, but also his encounter with Thomas. This is absolutely critical for us to catch, for us to understand that of all the things John could have talked about, he chose this as one of them. Let me read for us uh, this section in John chapter 20, 
verses 24 through 29, and we'll dive right in. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn there. Some of you uh, have it on your phone. Uh, if you have, a, uh, whether on your phone or, or a physical Bible, I'm reading out the New Revised Standard Version. You can follow along. Again, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them, with the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. All right, as we dive into this, there's three things that I see that I want us to catch, to pick up, that I believe uh, Thomas is experiencing. And through that encounter with the resurrected Jesus, that encounter, it changed everything. And the three things are this, that doubt is a driver. That faith has an object. And finally, believing is seen. First, doubt is a driver. You can say it this way, perhaps, that doubt has the ability to drive you in a direction. The question is, is what direction will it drive you? You see, doubt often in the Christian context is looked down upon, is said uh, as something is wrong. In fact, some of our worship songs even uh, speak against doubt as something that we should not have. However, if you look at the fullness of Scripture, actually, doubt can be a driver if it drives you in the right direction, if it drives you to God. We see in Thomas, of course, there's doubt. And of course, as we get into it, Jesus tells him, do not doubt. However, I believe it was his doubt that drove him to Jesus. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, there is a psalm, Psalm 31. You can read the fullness of it later, but it is a remarkable psalm that, that actually shows us, you know, a proper place for our doubt, a, pr a proper uh, way in which we can allow doubt to drive us towards God. Again, because doubt is a driver, I've seen in pastoral counseling where doubt can drive you the wrong way. When your doubt drives you away from God, when your drought, uh, doubt drives you to become bitter, uh, to withdraw from Scripture, to withdraw from praying, to withdraw from Christ-centered community, that's where doubt can, it can drive your life off a cliff. And I believe it's that kind of doubt that if we allow it to drive us, we actually end up further and further and further and further and further away from the very thing our soul needs, a relationship with God who loves us, who adores us. 
but rather if doubt drives us to ask questions, to seek, to not just take everything with certainty, but to, to wonder, to question. There's a, a remarkable quote. I don't know who it's been attributed to, but it says this. If you start with certainty, it will always lead to doubt. But if you start with doubt, it will lead you to certainty. I mean, you think about students when they go to a teacher and the teacher begins to teach. Uh, if they start off and say, oh, yeah, I, I trust everything you're saying. I'm just going to take it in. Will they, when they get out in the world, will they be able to apply it actually in their life if they've just been spoon-fed everything from their teacher, or if they question, if they raise their hand and say, well, hold, hold on, hold on. Uh, this thing that you just said seems to contradict this. Can you help me understand that? If they, if they seek to understand, if the doubt drives them to ask more questions, to press in, to draw closer to the teacher, to, to draw closer to the teaching, it leads to them to a, a greater sense of stability so that as they go out into the world, they're not going to be shaken by it. One of the things that I've seen so much in my life is that people, if they've grown up in the Christian church, if they've grown up in a Christian family, if they've been grown up in a, a Christian background, and if the context of their faith has always been, never ask questions. This is what you're supposed to believe. Uh, don't doubt. Uh, this is the certainty. Often I see when people enter out into the real world, when they graduate high school and, and get a job, when they go off to college, when they interact with people of different faiths, they lose their faith. The, the certainty that they had in their early years begins to crumble because they don't have the answers to the hard questions. But... I've seen people who grow up in a Christian background, a Christian home, a Christian faith, a Christian church, where there is permission to ask questions, where it encourages dialogue, where the, the source of knowledge comes from Scripture and that we are answering questions uh, using God's Word, but we're saying, but wait a second, that, that passage in Luke, help me understand that in light of this passage in John, when there is this sense of, of sharpening one another. I love how it says in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, that is iron sharpens iron, one sharpens another. As my Jewish friends say that we need to allow scripture to begin a conversation, not to end it. That when this becomes the source of our knowledge, the source of our hope, the source of our strength, because it invites us into a relationship where we can ask questions where our doubt drives us deeper and deeper into a relationship with God, where we see throughout the Psalms that actually the vast majority of Psalms, the prayer book of the Old Testament, aren't just songs of praise, aren't just songs of the glory and the majesty of God, but two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of questioning, Psalm 13, that says, my God, my God, why do you hide your face from me? How long must I search for you and then sleep in death? As Psalm 31 says, these remarkable things, as you go through this, there is, I have doubt, but I will trust in you. I have fears, but I will turn to you. It gives us a sense that doubt can 
and should drive us deeper into a relationship with God. And now let's take a look at Thomas, often referred to as Doubting Thomas. But I believe it was that doubt that drove him to Jesus, not away. You see, in verse 19 and following, Jesus appears to disciples in the upper room. They've locked the doors out of fear that they're going to be arrested, fears that perhaps they're going to follow the same fate of Jesus, even though Jesus said, I must die so that I will be risen from the grave. He said that again and again and again and again throughout the three years of his earthly ministry. And whether they forgot or they disbelieved, he's now died, but they don't believe he's going to rise from the grave. So they've locked themselves. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene through locked doors, through the wall somehow. And they are terrified as if they've seen a ghost. And the first thing he says isn't, come on, I told you this would happen. He doesn't say, you faithless, unbelieving people. He doesn't say that. He says, peace be with you. He enters into their fear. He enters into their disbelief. He enters into perhaps their doubt and says, peace be with you. But guess who wasn't there? Thomas. Now, it doesn't say explicitly why Thomas wasn't in the upper room. We don't know if he was busy, if uh, perhaps he didn't have the fear that they had to lock himself in a room. We have no idea why he wasn't there. Other than that, he wasn't there. And so the disciples have this experience without Thomas. And it says, take a look in verse 24, Specifically, Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, in the English, that might sound like they told him on one occasion. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But actually, in the Greek language, language of the New Testament, that this is a present progressive verb tense. In other words, they don't just tell him once. They are continually telling him. We've seen the Lord. They can't stop talking about it, perhaps, with Thomas. We've seen the Lord. In their interactions with Thomas, they're saying, we have not just seen him in his earthly ministry. We have not just heard him teach. We have not just seen him do miracles. We didn't just see him die. We have seen him resurrected. And Thomas, hearing this again and again, Stays in relationship with them. He doesn't just throw up his hands and say, you guys are crazy, and leaves. His doubt drives him into relationship with them, and he responds and he says this, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. I want you to imagine a dialogue that is happening, a dialogue that doesn't just happen once, The Greek verb tense is that this dialogue is continually happening. Doubt in Thomas's life has driven him into relationship with fellow believers, into relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ. They have seen with their own eyes the resurrected Lord. And his doubt drives them and drives him to have this dialogue where they are continually saying, we have seen him. 
And he says, unless I see him, and more than just see him, unless I can literally go beyond that and touch his scars, put my hand in his side, where the spear pierced him, unless I get that experience, I will not believe. Let me just say that a healthy church is one in which there is an invitation for doubts to be shared in the context of community. Now, we're never going to get this perfect. And it's one thing for me to say from the pulpit that this is a value of our church. It's another thing for us to live it out. But we want to be relentless in growing in this value. That we would be a safe and a safe enough and a safer community where people can come and they can, they can ask questions. And that those of us who have experienced Jesus the Christ, as we will get to in a moment, how we can do that without physically seeing him, that for those of us who are perhaps more mature in our faith, that we would be grounded enough in Jesus that somebody else's questions wouldn't shake us. You see, the disciples... They were so transformed by their experience, their encounter with the resurrected Jesus, that even his doubt in that moment didn't shake their faith in what they had experienced and what they saw. And the depth and the foundation of their trust in Jesus because of Jesus' encounter enabled them to receive in an unflapping, in an unshakable way, the doubt of the other. But I think what often happens is people who have to live with such certainty and perhaps have grown up with such certainty and that there hasn't been a, an environment in which questions can be asked, doubts can be raised. In actual fact, their certainty has led them to a place of doubt. And then when somebody else asks questions that, perhaps they've never considered before, it shakes their faith to the core. Often in faith communities where questions aren't allowed, that faith community has a very shallow faith. But in the faith communities where questions are allowed, and not just allowed, but encouraged, where that dialogue is modeled, that faith is far from shallow, it is deep. One of my favorite parts in Scripture is found uh, actually in the book of Romans. I'm popping all over Scripture. That's what we often do in these sermons, right? Because all of it is God's Word. All of it is connected and points to Jesus, who is our written Lord. Uh, but in Romans 11, after the Apostle Paul has written perhaps one of the deepest, most expansive, highest letters of theology that perhaps fits within the 66 books of the Bible. I mean, the depth that he goes to, the breadth of which he stretches human language, the heights that he gets to describe Jesus, it's almost as if he gets to a point where he has to, to put down the pen and just worship because Jesus is too large for his mind, his heart, for his words to comprehend. And he says this in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been God's counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In that moment, Paul says, 
God is God and I'm not. And though I'm trying to help you understand who God has revealed God's self to be through the person of Jesus Christ, how unsearchable are his ways, how mysterious is he? So I see in Thomas that that doubt is a driver. And for Thomas, he models for us what healthy doubt driving looks like. When it drives you into Christian community to ask questions, when it drives you to God's word, when it drives you to prayer, to say, I want more. Who are you? Reveal yourself to me. And what's so remarkable is that because his doubt drove him to community, to Christ, rather than away, I believe it sets the stage for the second point, that faith has an object. Take a look in John chapter 20. It says in verse 26, a week later, an entire week has gone by. We don't know how much of that week they're interacting with one another, but a week has gone by before Jesus has appeared to the disciples except for Thomas who wasn't there. And it says a week later, his disciples were again in the same house, same place, same context. However, this time Thomas was with him. And almost word for word, the same encounter happens that happened a week ago. Listen to what it says. It says, although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Somehow he enters through a locked door, through closed walls. He doesn't say, come on, guys, I told you what I was going to do. Why, why do you get it wrong? Why do you? He doesn't say any of that. He says, peace be with you. But then he turns to Thomas. And he says something so remarkable. You should catch this. He says in verse 27, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. What's so remarkable to say it this way is that uh, Thomas had conditions on which he would believe in Jesus. He put a big if in front of the statement of faith. If I don't just see Jesus, but I can put my hands in his wounds, his, my hands in his side, if and only then, if those things happen, then I'll believe. And what's so remarkable is that Jesus shows up and meets Thomas in the midst of his conditions but he says, do not doubt and believe. On one hand, he meets Thomas where he is, but doesn't want Thomas to stay there. He wants to lead Thomas from where he is presently to where he longs for him to be. And many of us today, perhaps we have if statements before a statement of faith. We might say, okay, God, if you get me healthy again, I'll go back to church. You know, if you get me that promotion that I've been praying for, that I, yeah, I, I deserve, then, I, then I'll really trust you. If you reconcile me back to that person who wronged me, then I'll believe. 
Or maybe that faith is in yourself. You know, uh, you know, if I can just, if you just give me the time to clean myself up, then, then I'll believe. But what's remarkable is that these if statements are something that Jesus acknowledged, but he wants us to look through our faith to him. You know, often I've said in pastoral counseling that faith is like the windshield, the front windshield of your car. A lot of people come in and they, they say statements to me like, oh, my faith is so weak. I want my faith to be stronger. My faith really took a step back last week. Uh, my faith is shaken and it's my faith, my faith, my faith, my faith. And I tell them, and I say, stop looking at the windshield. Look through the windshield. I want you to imagine this. Uh, imagine if everywhere you drove, on the streets, on the freeway, slow or fast, imagine if you only looked at your windshield. Now, when it's clean, it's hard to do this, but it is much easier to do when, you're, when your windshield is dirty, when your windshield has rain droplets coming. If you look only at your windshield, and not through it, devastation will happen. You're going to miss the turn, but more importantly, you're going to hit the car that slows down in front of you if you focus on the windshield. But we know as drivers that you don't look at the windshield, you look through the windshield at the objects in the distance. Your faith is a windshield. Stop looking at it. Look through it at the most important object in the cosmos. Look at Jesus. You know, one of the things I believe and the reasons why Jesus says, I want you to look at my hands and to look at my feet is Jesus saying, I want you to look at what I have done. You see, human-made religion is looking at the things that you have done. And if you've done good things, your windshield is clean. Uh, but if you've done bad things or if you haven't done enough good things, your, your, your windshield gets dirty, gets cracked, gets broken. That's why people often, they come in, they share with me, and perhaps you've felt it before. My faith is weak. My faith has taken a step back. My faith is broken. My, my faith isn't there. Human-made religion looks at yourself. And the fruit of that is you can be filled with shame, you can walk around not just thinking that you've made a mistake, but that you are a mistake. You can have a distorted view of who God is, who Jesus is. You might picture him wrongly as an angry God wanting you to measure up. Or it fills you with such pride and such arrogance that you've measured up that you begin to look down at other people around you. You judge them and you think that God owes you. When we take a relationship with God through Jesus and when we turn it into human-made religion, we forget what Jesus has done and we look at what we have done. You see, faith has an object. And if that object is your deeds, it will let you down. If your faith is in your health, it's going to let you down. If your faith is in your reputation, it's going to let you down. If your faith is in your accomplishments, in your job, in your financial security, if your faith is in what people have said about you, if your faith is in your family, if your faith is in experiences, whatever it might be, all those things, 
they're going to let you down. But there is an object who will never let you down. And it's not a thing, it's not a principle, it's a person. And after Jesus says to the group, peace be with you, he says to Thomas, look at me. Look at what I've done for you. Allow me to be the object of your faith. Remember, Jesus doesn't just say, I will be resurrected. He says, I am the resurrection. He doesn't just say, I know the truth or I will teach the truth. He says, I am the truth. He doesn't just say, I will show you the way. He says, I am the way. The letter to Colossians that Paul writes says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the head of the church. He is the first and the last. That all things were made through him and by him, and all things are for him. As the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the, the radiance of God's glory. We need to look past the windshield and through it to Jesus. And so remarkably, and it's so easy to just brush past in that moment, Jesus is saying, not just look at me and touch me. He's saying, look past all the other things in your life. Look past your conditions and see what I've done for you. And in that moment, I want you to catch that Thomas drops all of his conditions. Remember, just earlier, he says, if I can touch Jesus... If I can put my hands in his side, if I do that, then I will believe. But he never touches Jesus. Do you catch that? Take a look. Jesus has just said, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And it does not say that Thomas then touches him. And then says, oh. He looks through the windshield. He looks past the conditions. He drops it all and he sees what Jesus has done and he gives the most expansive, the most beautiful, the most majestic, the best confession of who Jesus is in the entirety of the New Testament. When he responds and he says this, Thomas answered him, this is verse 28, my Lord and my God. We remember Thomas as doubting Thomas, and that's it. And that minimizes him. It misses the transformation that happens in his life. Remember, doubt drove him to communion. Doubt drove him to Jesus. But we need an encounter with Jesus, and he saw through his faith, his conditions. And when the object of his faith was Jesus that came to him, he exclaims and he says, My Lord and my God. No wonder John puts this story as one of the pinnacles of the few accounts and the many accounts that John says these accounts help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that through faith in him you will come to believe and have newness of life. Think about this transformation from a doubter who had conditions 
to perhaps the most glorious, the most accurate, the most expansive confession of who Jesus is. He says, my Lord and my God. He is his Lord. He is his Savior. He is God in the flesh. But more than just that, Thomas says, you are my Lord and my God. It is a personal faith. His heart is transformed. He doesn't just believe in the concept of Jesus. He believes in Jesus. He didn't just believe in the truth that Jesus can teach or the way that Jesus can leave or the resurrection that Jesus has done. He believes in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection. He is absolutely transformed. So friends, if you have doubts, look at the journey that Jesus can take you on. From doubt to belief. Again, Jesus says to him, do not doubt. He doesn't want us to stay in doubt. And yet he meets, remarkably, Thomas in his doubt. Do not doubt but believe. It is this antinomy. You've heard me use this word before. Antinomy is an apparent contradiction. Where two things seem to contradict one another, but in actual fact, they don't contradict Light is one of the greatest examples of an antinomy, where on one hand it is matter, and you can measure it as matter, the particles of light, but also it is a wave. You can measure it not as matter. These seemingly two different contradictory things somehow exist in light, and scientists are still trying to wrap their mind around the mystery that light is. What an interesting metaphor and image, because Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. On one hand, Jesus says to Thomas, do not doubt. And yet he fully embraces his questions and doesn't show up and say, you shouldn't have asked or wanted to touch my side. He says, no, touch my side. Touch my wounds. Because the doubt didn't drive him away. It drove him closer. But then what's so remarkable also is what Jesus says next. And this leads to my third and final point, that believing is seeing. Take a look after that. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. You know, we know that phrase. We, we say it. We've heard it said that seeing is believing. Thomas said, I've got to see in order to believe. And yet Jesus came and he said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. The beginning part of that sentence, blessed are those, actually ties back to the Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes, that, that section of teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount in the midst of a variety of teachings from that Sermon on the Mount at the outset of Jesus' ministry? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the weak. And he finishes up that sermon with Thomas and he says, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. What's so remarkable is that in that moment, he said, Blessed are those who do not see, but Thomas, you needed to see. What? Again, he says to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see, 
But Thomas, you needed to see. Where did he say that? Well, he said that through his actions. He didn't pass a message through the disciples to Thomas and say, you know what? You missed your chance. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So Thomas, you're not going to see me. I'm going to test you. I hope you believe. He didn't do that. He shows up to Thomas a week later. And he allows himself to be seen. He's saying, Thomas, you must see me. Well, why would Thomas need to see Jesus? Well, it's a reminder that there are a unique subset of humans throughout the course of history that have seen with their own physical eyes the resurrected Jesus. And those that have seen Jesus with their their physical eyes are referred to as the apostles. And Thomas was one of them. That he needed to be included among the few that saw, that touched, that felt, that embraced the resurrected Jesus. In fact, John says in his gospel account, Luke says in his gospel account, this is what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have known. In fact, it says throughout the letters that Paul writes that there is a foundation that the apostles have built because they were eyewitness accounts, not just to his life before his death, but his resurrected life after his death. And yet at the same time, he says to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Friends, that's everybody else except for the apostles. That's me, that's you. He says, blessed are you who do not see Jesus physically with your own eyes, like they got to, and yet believe. You see, even the people that walked with Jesus, they still had conditions. Thomas was one of them. We might say, gosh, if I only saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, then I'd believe. If I only saw Jesus do a miracle, if I only heard Jesus' teaching in the flesh, then I'd believe. Thomas had all that. And it still wasn't enough. But when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, he saw through all of that, he dropped his conditions and he believed in the person of Jesus. And he said, my Lord, my God. And he saw something deep and expansive within Jesus. You see, friends, Jesus comes to you in the same way that he comes to Thomas. In the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your questions, Ask those. Be drawn closer to him through prayer, through the reading of God's word in the Christian community. He will come to you and he will reveal himself to you. But he will reveal himself as the object of your faith. Getting your eyes off of yourself, off of other things, to the faithful one, Jesus the Christ. And in believing him, though you might not see, you will have faith. Remember, The book of Hebrews 11, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, belief in things unseen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we live by faith and not by sight. And Jesus says to you and me, you'll be blessed if you believe. And in believing, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will begin to see things that you've never seen before through your eyes of faith.
And I've got to tell you, and this is just a personal experience that I've had with Jesus. In my times of prayer, in my times of scripture reading, because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus, even though I have doubts in some ways, I have questions, uh, but I use those doubts and those questions to drive towards scripture, to drive towards prayer, to drive towards God. I tell people often, you know, I have a long laundry list of questions that I have to ask God when I'm in God's presence. But I wonder, who knows? When I'm finally in God's presence, in the new heavens and new earth, will I drop those questions and simply say, my Lord and my God. But on this side of eternity, as I've put my faith and trust in Jesus, as I believe that somehow through the Holy Spirit, as I read these stories, it's as if I can see them happening. I know that might sound odd. I'm speaking from personal experience. But when I, when I read these scriptures, when I meditate upon them, when I consider them, it's as if my spiritual eyes, my eyes of faith, enable me to see. You see, believing is seeing, not the other way around. So friends, that's my hope for you. As you put your faith in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, even in the midst of doubts, that he will come to you, transform you, fill you with his spirit, and will reveal things to you as a result of your faith, faith, a faith that he has gifted you and given you. Hang with us, not only throughout this worship service, but also throughout this entire sermon series, because every single encounter is a different one. And in this, we see a bigger picture of Jesus, a bigger picture of these disciples, a bigger picture of ourselves, and a bigger picture of those in our Christian community. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you come to Thomas and you come to us. You meet us right where we are. You meet us in the midst of our questions. And because of that, you transform Thomas's life. And I pray that you will transform our lives today because Jesus, you're not just a, a figure of history, you're alive and well. And in the same way that you appeared to Paul, you've appeared to many, many others, appear to us today through faith. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.